welcome to the Alternative to Rehab podcast with your host, Dave Cooper. This is the fourth episode in this series where I'm reading from the book that's going to be published in the spring of 2023. And here in this session, we're going to be talking about what is the medical model. That's where we finished last time. And so I'm going to read now from a section of the book and then speak to it briefly to give you an idea of um, a more expanded idea of what we're talking about here. So the section is called, What is the Medical Model? And I start by quoting from Immanuel Kant, um, where he said that his wish was that all the insane be turned over to the philosophers and the medical men stop mixing into the business of the human mind. Very powerful quote there from one of the greatest philosophers that we've known. So having given you a biblical view into the human condition and the issues we face, I now want to remind you just how much the medical model differs from the biblical view. In other words, the view of mankind, who we are. How influential it might have been in your life, especially in the way you might have approached your personal development and growth. For at least the last 150 years, our Western culture has been soaked, you could say saturated, in what I will call the medical model. This very powerful way of looking at things arose from the scientific approach. It affects everything we do, especially the way we think about ourselves. This is because this way of thinking has been largely accepted as the way to think about ourselves. You may be shocked to find out how much this view has influenced the way you have managed yourself, not to mention the way it may have influenced the church that you've attended. Now, it's incredibly influential, especially around our mental and emotional well-being. Thousands of books offer tempting straplines about how you can be a better you and stop being a failure and say goodbye to depression, etc, etc. What do most of these books have in common? Well, they're mostly based on the medical model. Most problematic is that, like some of the worldly things, this idea has actually got into the church uh, and as a result it's become mixed in with God's teaching and has produced as much confusion among the suffering saved as it has the unsaved. Then there's a section called the medical model benefits and limitations. At the time of writing, the world is dealing with a global pandemic around the coronavirus. We see photos of this virus on news feeds and it is a perfect example of how useful the medical model can be. As a pathologizing model, it always starts with the same question, what's wrong with you? It helps us find cures and vaccines for things like the coronavirus. Now this medical view makes sense because a virus can be seen under a microscope. But let me ask you, can you see an attitude, a belief, or even a feeling under a microscope? Of course not. So we can start to see some limits to the medical model. The problem is that our society has become so saturated with this type of thinking that we are now applying it to everything. How many times do you hear yourself say, what's wrong with me? And there's something wrong with you? 
Psychology, based on the medical model, attempts to discover the problem, then to quantify, describe, name, diagnose and cure it. The act of looking for and differentiating between patients' issues leads to an ever-growing number of conditions. The DSM-5 now includes enough diagnosable and nameable conditions that in 2014, more than 50% of Americans were included as suffering from one or another of this growing list of conditions. Most people would agree that the two main institutions in modern society have been the church and science. When we think of what they've said about the parts of our personality, we end up pretty much in the same place. One demonises them and the other pathologises them. Either way, the two most influential bodies in our world have suggested that these parts need to be fought with and got rid of, either because they're evil spirits or because they are mental conditions. Now I want you to know that neuroscience has now blown these ideas out of the water as modern digital research actually catches up with the Bible. In Luke 8 verse 43 we read about a woman who was suffering with a bleeding issue that had been untreatable for 12 years. Of course this was not a prodigal son type of rock bottom as such but let me ask you this, would she have produced the faith that healed her if she had not suffered for that time? Faith that drew power from the Lord so much that he asked who touched me? Faith that produced an effect that happened to no one else on that day. Even though many people touched him, suffering brings moments that cannot be recreated. The value of our rock bottom. So what am I saying here? It is based upon an experience of meeting the late, great Max Glatt, who wrote the book Alcoholism, which was the text of medical students in Britain for many years and included a diagram, something like the one here. Now, of course, you can't see my diagram, um, but I'll just quickly describe it. It is basically a large V shape, like the letter V, and on the top left, it starts with normal drinking, halfway down, alcoholic drinking. Uh, at the bottom of the V, it says rock bottom. Halfway up the other side, it says active recovery. And then at the top of the other side, it says full recovery. So that's the diagram that we're going to start with. As you can see from this simplified version, this diagram has a pronounced V shape. It establishes the descent from normal drinking all the way down to a rock bottom and then maps the journey back up again to a full recovery. Now this is the epitome of the medical model, including as it does the idea that recovery is achieved when we return back to the same state we were in before. That is literally the definition of a medical recovery. But anyone who has overcome uh, difficulties of uh, addiction or dependence and made real change in their life will tell you that their recovery is far more than just a return to how they were before. What would the prodigal son say about his recovery? I'm sure it would be more than just returning to what he was before he left. Now, even back then in 1988, when I first read this book, I always felt that there was something I didn't like about this diagram, even though I had no training as yet and didn't know what it was that I didn't like about it. 
It was only years later after my systemic therapy training and some professional development of my own that I realised what it was about this medical model that bothered me. If we take the medical definition of recovery, it is literally defined as being restored to a similar state of health to, to that enjoyed prior to the condition or illness. And you can see this in the diagram where the full recovery is the same height as the normal drinking, as in the letter V. But if you ask people that have recovered from addiction, they almost always say that they have become far more than they were previously. And, and I am one of them. So we need to acknowledge that recovery from addiction goes beyond the medical concept of an illness. Something more is going on here. So when I run my workshops, I show this diagram and I ask what produces the full recovery in our, uh, our new diagram. The active recovery is the answer. And what produces that, I ask? Well, they answer the rock bottom. It's at this point that they often begin to see the idea. So what produces the rock bottom, I ask? Well, the alcoholic drinking. As painful as these observations are to people who care for addicted people, we need to acknowledge that we can spend a lot of time and money preventing the very thing that needs to happen. So I wanted to straighten out this V so it becomes a long ascending line and so that the bad bits as well as the good bits are seen as components of growth. When we do this, we construct an escape from the constraints and the negative consequences of success and failure. The question, what if all my experiences are leading me to recovery? What if they're all aspects of recovery? Well, when you fully digest these ideas, you're better equipped to work with yourself in a way that supports your development and your recovery as harmonious achievements rather than battles won. So we've got a new diagram here, which is simply a straight line ascending with all the components in normal drinking, alcoholic drinking, rock bottom, active recovery, full recovery, but now they're all seen as positive elements, all things that are needed to create and construct that recovery. And yes, I know this is hard teaching. It may take you some time before fully digesting this idea. Essentially, it means accepting that you often only get to the good bit through the bad bit. We all want to diminish suffering if we can. When I work with a family, I often have to support them over this hurdle. I assure them that I'm not asking them to stop loving their child, brother or their partner. I'm asking them to love them more. Let's go back to the prodigal for our learning. Did you notice the father's behaviour in the early part of the story? Would you call this uncurring? He did not stop the son from wasting all his money. He did not chase him or even stay in contact. He waited and watched until the process brought his son back to him. In Matthew 16 verse 23, Peter is rebuked by the Lord for trying to prevent his suffering. It seems obvious to Peter that the Lord must be protected and is willing to take on the role. Jesus makes him understand that these difficult things must happen in order for the glory to be revealed. He must get to the good bit through the bad bit. How many times have we delayed the recovery of someone 
by being overly helpful. Did this delay do any good? Or is it just a way of making us feel a little better because we're being helpful? If you're in a position of watching someone attempting or needing to recover, it's important that you don't delay their recovery by being overly helpful. Jesus shows Peter that his thinking is not deep enough. At these times, do we have in mind the things of God or just the things of man? Next section is called, How Does the Medical Model Work? By starting with the idea of what's wrong with you, this model essentially says you need to change. Or, in other words, you need to be less like you. When we're talking about mental and emotional issues, this is a bit like telling a cheetah that it should have stripes rather than spots, often placing the patient in an impossible position because of the way it creates inner conflict or self-loathing. It often leaves people with a sense that they have to change whilst at the same time defining their self-image in a way that makes them feel inadequate to the task. Next section is called changing your view of yourself. The biblical approach actually says just the opposite of the medical model. I'm going to show you that becoming more like you is a much more effective approach when attempting to outgrow your addiction and dependence. You will also learn how Jesus has modeled this for us and offers us a God-given method. Of course, the reason the medical model has been so successful in defining the way we think about ourselves is that it matches how we often feel. You know you do things wrong and that you fail and you have problems and issues. The medical model echoes your experience by saying that there's something wrong with you and offers ways to fix yourself. This model and the approach it takes has produced a self-help industry that is set to be annually turning over $13.2 billion in 2022. Not to mention a medicinal pill industry, which is set to be turning over $1,033 billion annually in the same year. But ask yourself, if these approaches were effective, wouldn't they be levelling out or shrinking by now, instead of growing exponentially year on year? The next section is called Dealing with Our Success and Failure. And I quote from 1 Corinthians 4 verse 3, where Paul says, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. Do you think of yourself as a success? Or do you think of yourself as a failure? Do you judge yourself? If you have an aim or a goal, you will have a sense of how well you're doing. So it makes sense to have a useful goal. The most useful goal is your own growth and development as a person. That way you will stay out of the trap of success and failure. No one put it better than the poet Rudyard Kipling in his poem, If. If you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. So in this poem, triumph and disaster are success and failure and he calls them both imposters. He suggests that we treat them both the same, by which he means that we should reject them both. If you think about the product of these states, you'll probably agree that success can lead to pride, while failure leads to shame. That's where they actually lead. 
The last thing you need is to get caught up in these as you cannot think clearly about your situation and how to help yourself from those two states. Being an overcomer, which is uh, from 1 John 5, 5, is a much better aim. I hope that you can now see that the trap of success and failure is real and maybe you know that you have been caught in it. Please try your best to avoid feeling bad about this. Rather concentrate on what you've learned today. Did you notice what I did there? Yes, I got you out of the trap. I help people see the trap for what it is and how counterproductive it is. Similarly, you can overcome this trap for yourself. The way you get caught in the trap is through the aim you set and your efforts to succeed. The next section is called a healthy alternative. Remember, at the beginning of this, I called success and failure a duality of concepts. We've just spent some time now looking at how these opposites can create a trap which you can become stuck in for years. But what's the alternative? Well, I help my clients aim for something that is not part of a duality, but is more of a unity or single thing, growth. I tell them that growth produces abstinence, but abstinence does not produce growth. You can think of this simply as a commitment to learning from everything that happens. And when I say everything, that includes your rock bottom, if you had one. Remember that I asked you to be prepared to be challenged. A lot of what you will learn here will go against your common sense. Most of all, be prepared to follow what God is saying through his design, through his son, and through his word. As we move away from the medical model, I am going to introduce you to a better way of looking at things. It is in the very heart of Jesus' ministry. The next section is called Learning to Value Your Unbelief. And I quote from Mark 9, 24. The father instantly cried out, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. So one of the best examples of this different thinking is one that I see and work with often. If a client is struggling with this idea of the multifaceted self, I explain that if the imagination did not work this way, if it could not work autonomously, we would not have any poetry or architecture, mathematics or science. I sometimes ask my client, when did you become a Christian? They might say, oh, when I was 20. So I remind them that any part of them that is less than 20 years of age is not a Christian. That often helps them to understand that if they started taking drugs at 15 and only became a Christian at 21, there's no point in calling on the drug-taking part to be a better Christian since that drug-taking part is not a Christian. Now, there's a great example of this in the Bible that I've just quoted, when a boy is brought to Jesus by his father because the disciples could not drive out the demon from the boy. Jesus asks the man to believe, and the man answers, Lord, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Here we see belief and unbelief living together in one person, just as they do in me and in you. And here we come to another reason not to hate your parts. I want you to know that just like the man in Mark 9, all your development from now till the day you die will come from your unbelief. Yes, 
it will come from your parts. Just like the disciples, you will see the transformation of yourself in recovery by winning your parts' trust and encouraging them to become what they were intended to be. I'm going to read a last section I call My Prayer of Gratitude. And I quote from Acts 3 verse 12. Peter saw his opportunity and addressed the crowd. People of Israel, he said, what is so surprising about this? And why stir at us as though we had made this man walk by our own power or godliness? Have you ever thought about the change in the disciples after Pentecost? Have you meditated on the clarity, the calmness and the courage they displayed once they trusted the Lord completely? Have you read in Acts how they spoke out and taught with such boldness and clarity, such as in Acts 4 verse 8 and 7 verse 2? As well as Paul, after his encounter with the Lord later in Acts 13 verse 16. These are amazing transformations by anyone's estimation, but once we understand the process and the fact that it can be duplicated within us, then we can read these exploits with a new understanding and a new enthusiasm. These qualities have now been identified through digital research into the brain's activity. As I said earlier, it should not surprise us that science is now catching up with the Bible. The qualities that researchers found to be consistently available as a resource for everyone are calm, clear, creative, curious, courageous, confident, connected, and compassionate. Now, does these states, these, these words, do they remind you of the disciples once they trusted the Lord completely? Well, these are your resources. God breathed his spirit into Adam in the garden, and we're all descendants of his. This means you have within you resources that come directly from God, pure, untainted by circumstance, unchanging over time, but not always accessed in experience. I hope that the difference between this biblical approach and other more traditional medical-based approaches is now becoming clear. It's not about changing and being less like yourself. It's more about making progress by accessing the thing God has already given you and understanding why you have not always been able to access it. I often use this understanding and gratitude for these resources in my prayers. This one I offer here will be typical of how I integrate these ideas into my spiritual life. Lord, I thank you for the calmness that passes all understanding. Where there was no way, you made a way for me. You gave me courage and confidence, helping me to think clearly as I face my troubles. Lead me to share your compassion as I connect more with others. Thank you for helping me be creative as I marvel at your creation. Let me never lose the wonder as I meditate on your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Notice that I'm giving thanks for the qualities mentioned above. Pure calm, courage and confidence, clarity, compassion and creativity as well as curiosity and connectedness. Giving thanks for these things, being grateful for what God has already done for us, is one way of improving our state 
and preparing for the challenges ahead. Okay, we'll stop there and I will say a little bit more about this stuff, which if you've not heard it before, um, is likely to be very challenging for you uh, and cause maybe one or two questions. Um, particularly um, in the way that the medical model has infiltrated into the church. Even in church teaching and, and preaching these days, you do hear a lot of uh, medical ideas and, and, you know, the idea of being fixed. Um, you know, that there's something wrong and we have to sort it out. But, you know, in, uh, the, in the Bible, um, we're, we're told that we are God's masterpiece. You know, we're told that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And I think that this is the biblical view. You know, this is how God made us. You know, we're at the very pinnacle of his creation. And so the idea that says, you know, we, we, are, we need to um, be fixed and be less like ourselves. I think it's fascinating to me when Jesus walks by Peter, James and John and says, come follow me. And they leave everything and follow him. But it's fascinating what he says to them. You see, he says, I'll make you fishers of men. What is he saying here? He's saying, you think you're fishermen, but I'm going to show you who you really are. See, this is fascinating to me because this is a direct challenge to the idea that you are uh, needing fixing. It's saying, actually, you, what you need to do is to become who you're supposed to be. And who you're supposed to be who you were made is God's masterpiece. And so accessing the resources that you've been given uh, is the second challenge. The first challenge is understanding how much as a culture we've been saturated in this medical idea. So ask yourself now, do you really, I mean, how does your thinking start? You know, when you think about things, do you start with the idea of uh, being broken or do you start with the idea of being a masterpiece? You know, it's, you know, are you starting from the medical position or are you starting from the biblical position? So uh, that is the main point here. And it's, it's, you know, it's one of the main hurdles we have to get over if we're going to use this God-given method that I'm going to introduce. If you start from the medical model, you can't really use this approach because instead of um, accessing the resources that God has given you, you will always be fascinated and stuck to the problems that you see yourself having and continually fighting yourself, trying to fix them. Whereas actually, um, I'm going to show you in future sections of the book that this is not what Christ did. This is not what Jesus did. This is not how he's taught us. Um, actually, he's taught us completely the opposite. But in order to really use this approach, you have to get over some of these hurdles. 
We have to have a clear understanding of what sin is. We have to accept that we are multifaceted in our nature and we have to get away from the medical model. They're probably three of the most important hurdles that we have to get over in order to really employ a biblical view of ourselves and to use the resources that God has given us. So um, I also share with you a, a prayer that I, I use that connects me up with all these resources. Um, I hope that's useful to you. And I'll also, I'm just going to give you something that I, I say and I get a lot of my clients to, to uh, repeat and to say to themselves several times a day. And it's a way of getting away from this trap of success and failure. I can't tell you what a, a hamster wheel that is when you define success too narrowly and then you fail uh, and you know you try even harder uh, and fail even harder and you just spinning around that wheel. I quote from Rudyard Kipling in that, but at the same time, um, I say to my clients to say this to themselves, I am not a success. I am not a failure. I am a human being and I'm here to learn. So that is uh, something that gets us back on track when we're too focused on success and failure. Uh, and of course they come as a duality. You can't have one without the other. If you invite success in through the door, you're also inviting failure. So, yeah, take those ideas and take the prayer and just ask yourself whether you can see what we're driving at here and how much, as a culture, we've been saturated in this medical idea um, and how well it seems to fit with the biblical idea and how much it actually jars with what God is saying about us. So there you go. Uh, until the next time, um, and we will be talking about developing relationships, better relationships with ourselves, and the way that the Bible has told us that we can do that. So until then, bye for now. <laughs>